I've got some tea and a warm blanket because weather has finally turned cold. I followed Chris's advice and I'm sitting in my bathroom to record this. <laughs> it has the best acoustics in my apartment. It wouldn't be the strangest thing. We've had folks interview uh, from their closets surrounded by clothes. So, you know, it's pandemic podcasting at its best. My closet was my close second choice, but... <laughs> close second choice. And so for everybody listening, uh, Chris couldn't be here today. So Alexander Nuclu, one of our producers for the Sausage of Science and also my graduate student, is going to be joining me today for our interview. And so Alex, who are we interviewing today? Today we are interviewing Dr. David Reichlin from the University of Southern California. And he was fairly recently in Arizona. And I actually remember a couple of years ago at the last conference we were all able to be at physically together, that he was in the process that he had accepted the job at California, but he had gone up for tenure. And so there's this additional crazy length process of actually physically being at said job. So it'll be fun to talk to him about how things are going over there for him. And as we'll talk about, Dave Reichlin and I actually go way back to when I was in, in grad school because he and my advisor, Herman Ponser, are good friends. And so Dave joined us on a research trip to the Great Ape Trust and visiting dive bars in Des Moines, Iowa and playing pool. Um, uh, and so I'm really excited. I also can't believe it's taken this long for us to get him on the show. So I know you're really excited about the interview today. So you want to tell us why you're super excited to interview Dave Reichlin? I am very excited about interviewing Dave today because of my own interests in physical activity in humans and the variation within physical activity and how the human body adapts to it. I am not so much looking at the evolutionary aspect of it, but that's what I like about his work so that I can use what I see in my work and kind of project it to his evolutionary theories. I absolutely love that. That is a really wonderful introduction. So let's bring him on. Hey, Dave. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing okay. When I last saw you in person was at a conference and basically you and I were both in the process of transitioning to new jobs, myself to Notre Dame and you to California. So how are things in California? Well, things are good in California. I'm actually in Tucson right here at the moment. <laughs> um, my life is somewhat complicated because my wife is finishing a residency program in Tucson. Uh, and so okay. I, even though I, I officially started at USC in July of 2019, I was back and forth all in the fall semester. And the plan was just to be back and forth quite a bit, but there's no fourth to go back to right now. So I've been quarantining here. So I missed a lot of some of the craziness with the fires around Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, although family and friends, many were severely affected. It's been a little crazy out there. Well, I'm glad you're safe and that you can be with your family and that the pandemic worked out for you in that way that you can start your new job and still spend time with your partner. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's been an interesting year for everyone, right? Yeah, <laughs> No one's had an uninteresting time, I think. Talking about interesting <laughs> stories, we love to hear our guest origin stories and we were interested in how you got interested in anthropology, why you decided to pursue it as a career and what your trajectory looked like. Sure. Probably mine is like a lot of people, but I, I went to college uh, not really knowing much about what I wanted to do, although maybe like 
thinking medicine or something, but uh, never really that excited about that. But I took a intro to, at the time it was called intro to physical anthropology course at Duke. You know, I was just a total nerd. And within like a week of the class starting, I had already read the entire textbook. I just got like sucked into the germane textbook. Clearly something hit me about the topic. And then during the class, one of the things that the professor had us do was we had to choose a pop science book in bioanthro to read. And I chose Lucy, which at the time I went to college, it was not as far removed from the finding of Lucy as it is now. And I was just swept away. And as I got into the book, Johansson was writing about different people in the field. And he had like a, a comment or maybe a couple paragraphs about Elwin Simon, who was at Duke University. And so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And so I emailed him. And he kind of became my first mentor through that interaction. And he ended up taking me into the field a couple times and just being an all around really interesting guy to get to know. And he sort of shepherded me into this idea of, okay, well, you could really do this. You can go to grad school and you can do this for a career. And so that was sort of the start. I mean, I think finding that mentor early on is one of those key moments for, I think, a lot of people. And it's something I really try to instill in undergraduates that's those personal interactions that lead to major life changes that you never would have imagined. And to talk to us, like talk to your professors. We aren't as scary. Like we want to talk about what we do. Exactly. We, I mean, why else are we doing this, right? We love this. Mm -hmm. If there are undergrads out there listening, find a faculty member and go to the office hours and start chatting because that's why we're here. Right. So Duke for undergrad and then graduate school on to? Yeah. For graduate school, I went to the University of Texas at Austin mm -hmm. and I worked with the greatest advisor that's ever been with Liza Shapiro. And I got very interested in uh, the biomechanics of locomotion. With Liza, we worked on sort of the ontogeny of quadrupedalism in monkeys that was my dissertation was really focused on that and on looking at how developmental changes in morphology, mainly muscle mass distribution, affect locomotor biomechanics. Getting at some questions about what kind of attributions can we make about kinematics to adaptation versus just sort of evolutionary byproduct events, that kind of a thing. So if you could break that down for our audience, because it turns out we have a fair amount of non-anthropologists who listen. What is kinematics? Fair enough. Kinematics is study of movement. And so we were looking at how these infant primates move around in the world, but pretty specifically looking at timing of different gait events like dance phase and swing phase and how long their strides are and that kind of a thing. And so you have another connection actually between both Alex and I, and that's Adam Gordon, who is at Albany that we both just recently left, who is just Very a true. wonderful, sweet, supportive human being. He's good. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I went to graduate school with Adam. I was in the cohort, I think right behind him. And yeah, he's been one of my best colleagues from that point on, from, from the time mm -hmm. I started grad school. At the University of Texas, we had this amazing group of graduate students that all started in kind of, yeah, middle, late 90s. And another thing that people can kind of think about in their own careers as they're in graduate school is working with your cohort to improve your writing and your statistical mm. knowledge. And, you know, the things that you can learn from each other, even though you're not doing the same kinds of work are really amazing. And I attribute a lot of my knowledge to hanging out on the stoop in front of the Anthro building at Texas and talking through stuff with my grad student colleagues. So it's something that people should take advantage of as much hmm. as you can. 
because life changes so much after so grad school. Much. Yeah, I mean, when I look back on it and when I think that I was stressed out in grad school, <laughs> like that, I feel like that has nothing compared to what happens as faculty. But so you started with primate kinematics and biomechanics and you have since kind of moved on towards human studies. And we uh, looked at a couple of papers of yours and, and the first one was in ENAS, uh, Sitting, Squatting and the Evolutionary Biology of Human Inactivity, in which you look at activity and inactivity patterns among the Hadza, which is a modern day society of hunter-gatherers. And I know I'm talking a lot here, but there's a big buildup to it. And that, as I'm sure you know, the way the Hadza have been described has varied a lot, uh, even in the past few years where they are sometimes held up as this evolutionary monolith and that they are the best representations of, you know, our evolutionary past without really noting that, yeah, no, they have moved along through time, just like everybody else. And you have an explicit statement about that in your paper. And I was kind of wondering the motivation to do that and perhaps how we can get more people to be that explicit and, and not misconstrue the bias of how the Hadza and other hunter-gatherer or foraging populations are actually portrayed. For sure, yeah. Thanks for asking about that. I mean, I think the fact that you pick up on that statement in the paper makes me happy because we put it in there just for that. And I think one of the things that we try to be really cognizant about, and it just part of it comes from working with them because you're, you're hanging out with people who are just the most wonderful people and they're, they become your friends. And, you know, you recognize very quickly that when people write about living groups that practice a hunting and gathering lifestyle, they are often written about as perfect models of our ancestors. And I think it's just really important that those of us working with these groups make explicit statements so that you cannot misconstrue what we're trying to say. And I do that in papers. I also do that when I give talks. I think it's really important when you're up in front of an audience or now on Zoom in front of an audience that you're just very explicit about why you're working with these groups and what we can learn from them. And I try to be very careful about what we can learn. And I think the sitting paper is a good example of what can we learn? We can learn that in this kind of a lifestyle, this is what we see in terms of inactivity and activity. It's pretty specific to their particular mm -hmm you know, subsistence pattern, it's, it may not extend past the odds of participants we worked with, right? We can use that in some ways as a window into what hunting and gathering may require, but that's about as far as you can get, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the statement we make in the paper is really that their modes of activity and inactivity very likely resemble what we would have seen in the past more than our modes of activity and inactivity. But again, that's about as far as you, mm -hmm. you can go. And that's as far as you want to go because, you know, these are people that are living a very modern lifestyle that happen to forage for their food. But, you know, they, they are not a relic population. They're not isolated yeah. in any sense. They have a lot of them have cell phones, you know, and they, they hang out with other people. They just, they just choose to live this way because some of them like it very much, right? I they have other choices and they choose to live this way. I really like that you hit on that this is very specific to the Hadza and that this could not be true for any other population in the world. And that work like this and done by so many others, it highlights the vast range of human variation, both anatomically, physiologically, and behaviorally. And that that in and itself provides really important information evolutionarily about the range of possibilities that could have been available to our past ancestors. So, so thank you for mentioning that because variation is something that people like to sometimes forget about uh, when it comes right. to this kind of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. 
There are people working with groups around the world that live in all sorts of different subsistence lifestyles. And so the more that we can kind of get a sense of what variation there is, I mean, I'm specifically interested in physical activity, inactivity, the more we can understand how these different lifestyles are associated with that variation and what's driving that variation, then we might be able to get a better picture of our evolutionary history mm -hmm. of activity. This is a great segue into our next question. In this paper, you propose the inactivity mismatch hypothesis. If you would like to tell us a little more about what it is and why it is important and what also inspired you to study this. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing was uh, specifically looking at physical activity levels in, within the context of the Hadza lifestyle and what that might mean for health and well-being in that population and what we can kind of extrapolate to, to other populations. But the other side of the story is that we spend a lot of time resting and, and we spend a lot of time sitting. And a lot of work over the last couple of decades has suggested that sitting itself might actually pose some health risks, potentially independent of how active you are. And that created kind of an interesting situation for us because as we were hanging out with the Hadza and working with them, we noticed that they spent a lot of time resting. And so it kind of caused us to think a little more about, well, if sitting is harmful, how is it that this population doesn't seem to see negative effects from spending a lot of time resting? And so the inactivity mismatch hypothesis that we started to develop, we were really looking at, is it possible that it's not the time you spend inactive that is detrimental to health? It's the way you're inactive that's detrimental to health. And perhaps mm. our, our physiology just never sort of had to adapt to the kinds of inactivity that we engage in in industrial, more industrialized populations, like sitting in an office for eight hours a day and getting up every couple hours or something like that, but that perhaps it's the inactivity that you might experience in these more ecologically relevant settings it might help us understand something about why inactivity is so harmful. So really, our goal was to get a sense of what does inactivity and rest look like in a population that's practicing hunting and gathering. And we weren't sure. I mean, to be honest, we didn't know how inactive people were. We just kind of had a guesstimate because we were sitting around with them while they were sitting around. It seemed like a lot, but we needed to measure that and see what we could find. Yeah. So how did you go about measuring that? What was that process like and how long were you working with the Hadza? For that study, we went out there in summer 2015 to do this work. And we uh, measured, we were measuring both activity and inactivity using wearable accelerometers. The accelerometers that we chose are devices called Active Pals. They actually sit on your thigh. And mm -hmm. so they can measure not just how often you're active and inactive, but they get a little bit more detailed about postural data. You can look at the inclination of the accelerometer itself and get a sense of whether someone is inactive but standing or whether in inactive but sitting, that kind of thing. So that was how we measured time spent sitting or time spent resting. We also wanted to know how they were resting or how they were inactive. And so we did scan samples of camp every hour and just documented all the different postures they were using. There's this really cool paper from the, I think it was 1955, a guy named Gordon Hughes, who went around the world and documented postures of people from all different cultures, standing, sitting, squatting, sitting on the ground, and has this really extensive categorization of these postures. So we used an adapted scheme from the Hughes paper to document the different postures that were used. So that gives us the sense not only of how much time people were spending inactive, but also how they were inactive. 
The other piece of the puzzle that we were really interested in gets a little bit at the mechanisms that may make sitting harmful to us. What seems to happen when you're sitting in a chair is that you turn off your muscles. So a chair is really, I mean, it's an amazing device that we invented, right? We invented this thing that you sit on and all of your lower limb muscles basically go quiet, which makes it really comfortable. You don't have to support your body at all. We were interested in whether the kinds of postures that the hods of people were using would actually lead to higher levels of muscle activity than sitting in a chair. The reason that's important, muscle activity requires metabolism, right? It requires energy. And so generally light levels of muscle activity to fuel that activity, you metabolize triglycerides, which basically pulls triglycerides out of your bloodstream. It has a really beneficial effect on cardiovascular disease biomarkers. So that was a really roundabout way of saying that what we were interested in is whether the kinds of postures that are used by hods of people when they're resting could lead to muscle activity that would actually be beneficial in the sense that it would suck triglycerides out of their bloodstream to fuel light muscle activity. So in addition to accelerometry and, and sort of observational studies, we used an EMG system, electromyography, to measure muscle activity in different postures to give us a sense of whether these postures led to light levels of activity. In your paper, you have figures on the age versus amount of time spent sedentary. And it's a very interesting because it looks like both sexes, men and women, are actually inverse of one another. So young women are less sedentary than their young male counterparts. And then the reverse is true for older women who are more sedentary than older men. What do you think that is? Why do you think there's this inflection at 37 years? I think that's a really, it's an interesting question. I think it's probably a little early for us to be going, kind of interpreting data kind of down that road. Uh, right now, I mean, statistically, we ran uh, our models and age didn't have a significant effect on time spent sedentary or time spent inactive. It does look a little bit like there may be some story that, that may come out. I think we'd need quite a bit more data to really solidify those age effects. I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is that in more industrialized societies, you do often see a pretty strong age effect where older adults spend more time uh, sitting. If there's an age effect in this population, it's going to be pretty, pretty small would be my guess. Okay. And so then overall, what did you find and what might be the quote unquote best way to rest uh, for humans? <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, what we, what we found was that, and again, it, it was actually somewhat surprising that the amount of time that this population was spending inactive or at rest was about the same as, as us living in the U.S., about 10 hours a day inactive. So it's quite a bit. And, and at that level of inactivity in epidemiological studies in the U.S., Europe, that's when you tend to start seeing higher risks of cardiovascular disease, higher risk of diabetes, higher risk of mortality. But the way they were resting is obviously quite different. And so we found quite a bit of use of postures that don't resemble chair sitting at all. So things like squatting, kneeling, and in our electromyography data, those squatting postures elicited much higher levels of muscle activity in the lower limbs than chair sitting. And so kind of putting it all together, I think our inactivity mismatch hypothesis was fairly well supported by this data set that people living in this hunting and gathering lifestyle are inactive for a long period of time every day. But that inactivity, quite a bit of it is spent in postures that elicit muscle activity that may actually be beneficial. 
it's um, like so passive Jeff, activity, it, kind of in a way. Yeah. It's, yeah. 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 Um, and we we called them active rest postures in the paper. <laughs> the take home message for for people, at least our take home message, was not that everyone should go out and start squatting, and not that everyone should spend all their time kneeling. Although, if you can, you can, and that's great. And I and I do know people who do spend a lot of time in these kinds of postures, but really it's the idea that we need our muscles to be more active more often. Some of that can come from dedicated physical activity, but a lot of that can come from just interrupting long periods of sitting, mm -hmm. get up, move around. Don't spend more than, you know, a half hour, 40 minutes at a time sitting in a chair. That's Which we are where all these doing. kind of harmful effects. <laughs> right. right now. <laughs> with Exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I got to say, my, the best part about talking about this work is usually, you know, usually I, I, if I'm giving a talk, I'm standing mm -hmm. up and I'm walking around giving yeah. a talk. But it's when I start to get about halfway through it, you start to notice people in the audience start fidgeting and moving around and, you know, someone will get up and go stand on the side of the room or something. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully this kind of work at least gives people a little impetus to think about, okay, why is it that this behavior that we do all the time seems to lead to detrimental health mm -hmm. outcomes? And there may be some real reasons why our physiology just doesn't work very well like this. Mm -hmm. And it's probably because it's really recent that we developed chairs and started sitting in them. And so can we think of ways to change our local environments a little more to reduce the amount of time we're in those chairs? It doesn't take that much, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like you have to stand all day. That's not the case, right? It's just finding ways to get a little more muscle activity into your life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Walk to the fridge more often for snacks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, drink more water all day long mm -hmm. so you have to get up and pee every half hour, right? As I sit here with my tea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a theme about a lot of the work that I do with my colleagues is, is just like, can we think about why our behavior influences our health in some way? Mostly I'm interested in physical activity, right? Why does physical activity influence some health outcome in some way? And how can we use that answer or whatever, how, however close we can get to an answer to actually improve the way that we do things in life today, right? To improve health outcomes today. And I think taking that evolutionary approach can lead you to more interesting answers than simply doing the epidemiology or, mm -hmm. or the physiology. Right. Awesome. Moving on to your other uh, article that we wanted to talk about, the one in Scientific American called Why Your Brain Needs Exercise that you co-wrote with Gene Alexander. Do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about the research behind that article? I would love to talk about that work. I've been really interested in the interaction between physical activity and the brain for quite a while. And, you know, I've done work on physical activity and reward systems. When I taught exercise physiology at UAlbany, I would bring up your endocannabinoid work in class and my oh, students nice. are like, really? It's like yeah. marijuana? What? Yeah, <laughs> they always get excited about it. <laughs> shocking that, that undergrads <laughs> really enjoy that connection. <laughs> but just like with the kind of sitting squatting stuff, I'm just fascinated by why these things have an impact. And I've always been interested when it comes to physical activity of why is it that you move your body and that has some impact on your brain. And for a long time, people kind of thought about questions from the neck up and neck down mm -hmm. as being totally separate. You know, the mind and body are really connected in interesting ways. And so I started working with Gene Alexander at the University of Arizona, and he's a neuropsychologist. And we just walked down these pathways of, okay, can we find an evolutionary or think about an evolutionary foundation for understanding links between physical activity or exercise and brain health? 
And so that evolutionary foundation brought us back to thinking about this hunting and gathering lifestyle and what is required of you when you live this lifestyle. And we started to think a lot about, well, you're physically active when you're foraging, but while you're doing that, you're doing lots of other things, right? You're physically active, but you're also having to use spatial navigation skills. You're also having to make decisions and plan things. So using executive cognitive functions, you're having to multitask. Um, You're having to rely on your memory. So lots of different cognitive domains are being combined with physical activity and movement. And so we started to think, well, maybe that could be at the root of some of these connections between brain and body, that it's not just physical activity itself, but it's what physical activity primes you to do. So Mm. when you are active, That's in the past, our activity was all related to foraging. So is physical activity kind of priming you to engage these cognitive domains? And if so, does combining physical activity with cognitive demands actually lead to even greater improvements in brain health than physical activity alone? And I should kind of step out of this and say a lot of this work was based on really amazing studies showing that people who are physically active had better cognitive performance later in life, especially had less uh, structural atrophy later in life. And then intervention studies that showed that just being active, you can actually alter brain structure over six months, 12 months, that kind of a thing. So we were kind of building on that work to figure out, can an evolutionary perspective improve on these interventions in some way? So I'm going to come at this, of course, as as a power lifter, (laughs) Uh, because a lot of this work done is on aerobic exercise and the impact aerobic exercise has. And so it's kind of a twofold question with this is what are the benefits that aerobic exercise can have neurocognitively that might also carry over into other parts of health? But also, why does nobody look at like lifting just when I when I get on my 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 soapbox because I think about it and the mental gymnastics I have to go through when I lift of sets, reps, percentage of weight, I am doing math constantly (laughs) when I am in the gym. Uh, Like people need to study weightlifting more. Anyway, so if you could talk about, yeah, the, the benefits of aerobic exercise and then maybe why things like anaerobic aren't getting the attention that I personally think they deserve. Absolutely. Uh, And I totally agree with you. So um, the benefits are pretty extensive. There are, as I said, from both epidemiological and from randomized controlled trial intervention, we see structural benefits in the brain. So mostly related to sort of frontal areas, but also uh, the hippocampus is sort of where researchers quite often see exercise, either effects or associations. And then cognitive domains that, that are hippocampal dependent, like Uh, working memory and navigation, and then uh, frontal-related cognitive domains, mainly executive cognitive functions, all seem to be improved by physical activity, again, either through epidemiological work or through intervention studies. So I think there's a really solid base. And incidentally, you see this at two age ranges specifically, where, where the effects are greatest, at very young kids and in older adults. So it's like, When the brain is growing and when the brain in at least what we tend to think of as the normal trajectory is the brain is sort of going through some atrophy. In middle age and young adults, there are effects, but they're generally not as strong as we see later in life. I tend to focus on older adults. That's where I'm interested. But, you know, the the loss of activity in kids is so detrimental because you can really, you can push cognition around quite a bit by getting kids to be more physically active. 
So those are sort of the exercise effects that we see. In terms of lifting, I totally agree. There are some data. So there have been some randomized controlled trials on uh, resistance training with older adults, not necessarily powerlifting. I think there's a couple of reasons why aerobic exercise has been more of a target. Number one, the main reason is that all this work started with animal models, with mm. rooms on running wheels. And the reason that this work really began was because it wasn't because people were interested in exercise per se. It was because running wheels were a part of cage enrichment in rodents. And researchers in uh, San Diego started to see neurogenesis mm. in so the growth and survival of new neurons in the hippocampus in mice that were housed in enriched environments. And so then they started trying to piece apart, you know, the, the environments had like tubes to run through and running wheels and all sorts of stuff. So then they needed to figure out what, what was it about enrichment that was most beneficial and it turned out to be the running wheel. So you're telling um, me, Dave, that we need to build squat racks and deadlift platforms well, for mouse cages. <laughs> I have, so that was, that was the next part was like, it's, it's actually not easy to have resistance training models for rodents. There are some out there that don't seem very pleasant for the rodent. And so not something that I advocate, but that said, there has been some work on resistance training. It's easier to get older adults into an aerobic exercise program mm -hmm. because most of these programs for people who are in their seventies and eighties are generally kind of walking programs. A little, a little more challenging maybe to get, get people into uh, weightlifting. And it wouldn't be powerlifting, right? It would be a much yeah, more absolutely. <laughs> I'm not suggesting training. a 70-year-old go for a 400-pound squat day one. Right. Probably not. Like, it's really important to do because, mm -hmm. I mean, look, I'm advocate of sort of the holistic benefits of all of these forms of exercise, both aerobic and resistance. And for older adults, I mean, resistance training is so incredibly beneficial so to reduce important. fall risk. So um, important. And it's so and it and it's one of those things that people don't do. If we can find even more ways to give people a reason to do it, that's a great thing. I think it might also be a generational thing because jogging was big in the 80s and the generation that is getting older is is more into endurance than lifting or resistance. But maybe the generation that is now more into resistance training in general might be more into resistance training later in life. I can't wait to be that old lady deadlifting 300 pounds, <laughs> showing up all the gym bros when I'm 80 years old. Absolutely. <laughs> Moving on, still talking about the elderly and the benefits your research might have on them, especially concerning Alzheimer's disease. In your Scientific American paper, you talk about uh, this game that has been developed, trying to squeeze out as much benefit as possible from this. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's where all this led. So, I mean, Gene and I kind of had these ideas. We wrote a, a review paper in Trends in Neurosciences in 2017 that kind of laid out our argument for simultaneous aerobic and cognitive activity and, and the potential benefits for that. And so kind of based on those ideas, we built like an Xer game, which is really just a game that you can play on a tablet that's set up on a stationary exercise machine. And the game that we developed was based on these kinds of evolutionary-based models of what kinds of cognitive activities might be most relevant. So there is this big spatial navigation element to it. There's a maze that you are sort of going through, and then there's a lot of multitasking happening at that same time, trying to get at different aspects of cognitive demands. And so we did a, uh, just published it a few months ago, um, our first pilot randomized control trial of the game. 
So it had 75 participants in it, but we randomized them into four arms. So we compared older adults, these are 65 and older, using the game while they're on the exercise bike, so the simultaneous condition. We had another arm of the trial where people just exercised, they didn't play the game. We had an arm of the trial where people played the game but didn't exercise. And then we had this control group that watched nature videos. It was a challenging study. It was my first time doing an intervention trial like that, but it was really illuminating. We had we did find some really nice effects in terms of some improvements in cognitive performance. In particular, we had individuals doing a, a dual task test, uh, which is an executive cognitive function task. And in the combined arm of the trial, they actually improved on that test earlier. They improved at six weeks versus 12 weeks was the length of the total trial. And their improvements were double what we saw in the exercise only or the cognitive. So we, we started to see evidence of perhaps an additive effect where you can actually kind of put the two effects together and get this doubling um, improvement. This is super interesting to me because I, I personally work on how brown adipose tissue affects metabolism. And in the literature, brown fat is usually considered as this potential tool to help with diabetes and obesity. But it is really interesting to see that somebody as an anthropologist or a human biologist, you actually go ahead and do develop this tool that you implement your research into a more applied feature. And I, I wanted to know what made you go that extra step and would you recommend more anthropologists to do so and how, what specific way they would go about it? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I look at it as, as the kind of natural extension of these ideas of, okay, if we're getting a sense of how an evolutionary perspective can actually improve on recommendations or we could use that perspective to build a a device or application that can actually help people. I just kind of felt like we should do it. <laughs> and it was fun to do. I mean, you do this job for uh, for quite a while. And I think part of what is exciting is getting the opportunity to branch out and try something new. And I had never tried to develop a game or do something like that. And it was really fun and it was challenging and it was exciting and it still is. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I encourage anyone to think about how your questions can be applied to help people today. Why not? Why, if, if they can, why wouldn't you? That doesn't mean that they have to. That doesn't mean that every, everybody has to study things or every question has to lead to some you know, great improvement in health. But if that's the way you're going, why not keep taking those steps? And I think as anthropologists, we've tended to shy away from some of those moves. And, and there's no reason to. These fields are extremely welcoming to mm -hmm. an evolutionary perspective. I was not trained in any way in neuroscience or, or neuropsychology or whatever. But as I've started to, to learn more and move in that direction, I found it an, an incredibly welcoming field that where people are just so excited that there is this perspective that kind of helps them understand why they're doing what they're doing. I think we have a lot to add, and it's not just in mm -hmm. the areas that I'm at, but we're dealing with the biology of the human body, right? And that has an impact on everything that we do as humans. And so I think we do have this ability as anthropologists to, especially when it's kind of delving into new areas, to expose other researchers to these ideas and see where that leads. And I think oftentimes it leads to really, at, at worst, a really fun conversation. And at best, you know, you can, I mean, I've been now collaborating with Gene for nine years now. And that was just from a one-off email, like, hey, let's talk about the evolutionary basis for what you're interested in. And it leads to some great collaboration.
yeah. So I think people should, if they can, if they can find ways to apply these models to things that can help people today, I think that's all the better. I think we are seeing the, I'm not sure if you want to call it the resurgence or perhaps a, an emergence of, again, going back to this idea of bio and cultural, and we should no longer be in our individual silos. And I think that is also true, just like you said, with, between just anthropology as a whole and the biomedical world, because the perspective we bring is so very holistic. Um, and then the, the expertise, uh, the expertise that the biomedical world <laughs> can bring to us is fantastic. And so, yeah, those can be some of the best the most fruitful collaborations. And I, I think from what I heard, it almost feels like there's an ethical responsibility with some of this kind of work to do something useful that you can bring to folks. So that's great. And I know Alex and I were both excited to, to see this come out of it. That was great. Yeah, it's really fun. And I, you know, I mean, I, I think of for a long time, I thought, well, you know, I, I enjoy doing this. Maybe what I add to the world is when I give a talk, I, sometimes people get inspired to go exercise or do something. And that was always fun, but it's been really fun to have a thought like, well, maybe we could actually leave something that helps people behind. Mm -hmm. That would be really cool. And I, so we'll see what happens. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I think it's a good idea for everyone. Career trajectories can be difficult to sort of figure out. And obviously, you know, there are things that have to be done to get tenure mm -hmm. and blah, 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 blah. But when you start to have a little more freedom, you can really start to think about, okay, I'll take this risk. Maybe nothing comes of it, but maybe something really cool happens and you have taken an anthropological idea and mm -hmm. built it into something that can really make a difference. It's going to be fun to follow your work, uh, no matter which direction it leads or what other product may or may not come out of it. So we have reached the end. You you literally have had the most questions of any guest we have ever had. And that's because both <laughs> oh, Alex good. and I have such a personal interest in this work. Uh, but we've come to the fun portion of the interview. And I had actually started the introduction by telling Alex a little bit like the first time I met you, if I remember correctly, was in Des Moines, Iowa, when Herman was conducting the work at the Great Ape Trust. And like, I have a very clear memory of playing pool in a dive bar. So that brings the part up of, Fun. So how do you maintain work-life integration? What do you do in your downtime? This is, it's going to sound so nerdy because it's like what I do is what I actually study. But I, I mean, I, I'm a runner and I'm on the trails all the time. And so that's honestly, when we have free time and the weather is cooperative, that's what we're doing. And then I do a ton of barbecue. Well, well I mean, I, yes. Absolutely. We've had a um, lot of people on this show where smoking meat is their hobby. You are not alone in this. Oh, yeah. I also have a meat smoker. Good. This is a, an oddly common thing in our field. We are now discovering because yeah. of the podcast. That's good to know. Yeah. Maybe we need, maybe we have to have like an AAPA barbecue yes. contest or we cookout do. or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I went to college in North Carolina. I went to grad school in Texas. So you got the pork you know, and the beef things. down with those two I And I do it all. I do the holy trinity. Uh, I usually do like a pork butt, a brisket, and ribs. Yes. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Well, you are in good company because again, like I can't believe how many folks we've brought on this like barbecue <laughs> and meat smoking as a thing that, that it's, it's ridiculous how many of us do it. Yeah. But it's so, it's so calming and it's so scientific as well. Thought. Yeah. It takes yeah. a lot of thinking, but it's, it's very meditative. You can sit outside all day and you're being extremely productive mm -hmm. and then you get this end result that is glorious and it makes everyone happy. What's better? What better way to spend your time? I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those are my two off work hobbies. They also go well together, running yeah, and then. Absolutely. 
Get yourself ready. <laughs> so to conclude, we usually like to ask our guests if you have anything you want to promote or advertise, any new work that's coming out, or if you're accepting graduate students for any that might be listening. Yes, I'm accepting grad students for sure. So, you know, people out there are listening, definitely get in touch with me. I'm always interested and excited to talk to people about doing this kind of work. And in terms of promoting, I will, you know, what I'd like to do is promote my graduate student just had an awesome paper come out just a couple of weeks ago in a theme issue in philosophical transactions of the Royal Society. That issue is based on a primate aging symposium. So my graduate student's name is Katie Sayre, and her paper is really cool. It compares physical function in the Hadza people and in a pastoralist group that she worked with in Kenya. And so it really is getting at how do these different lifestyles and these different patterns of subsistence influence the aging process in different ways? And she found some cool kind of differences that may be associated with what's required of, of living these different lifestyles. So again, kind of getting back to what we talked about earlier about variation across populations. How do we link up the variation in the ways people live to variation in how they age, for example? Uh, so it's a really cool paper. And that whole issue is worth checking out. Uh, we'll have to get her on. That sounds fascinating. Like we'll Absolutely. totally invite her on the show to do like, we love promoting grad students and junior faculty as much as possible. So that sounds like a great way to keep along that line. She would be great on the show. She's fantastic. Oh, that's really good to hear. Right, Dave, it's been really wonderful chatting with you. I've enjoyed, I always enjoy chatting with you, but it's been a long time. So thank you so much for having the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. This has been really fun. Thank you. And thank you. Nice to meet you, Alex. Yes, nice to meet you as well.